Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 57 Justice League Heroes Trailer Ride Ain't Over Yet I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Less than 30 days to go. We're going to skip the intro. I was exhausted when I first saw the trailer, but my brain was buzzing with thoughts and I let it all pour out in this rambling stream of consciousness, which I've come back to cut, condense and change. Theoretically, everything should be in order of accessibility and relevance, and that way you can always check out of the episode when it seems no longer relevant to you. I'm not so sure that it worked, but let's just try it out. To give you a roadmap, the plan is, first, my overall impressions. Next, a trailer breakdown with the digressions edited out. Third, takeaways in terms of expectations. And finally, the footnotes, which go off into those dense and wordy tangents. I didn't have time to record new transitions or pull clips, but here you go. Future Doc here. I did end up recording transitions because I wanted to touch on some current events, which I've affixed to the end. The thoughts are solely my own, and I'm not offended if you're uninterested or disagree. As I always say, reasonable minds will differ. And that's it. Hopefully, with the transitions, everything will sound a little smoother. I'm going to send you back to a blissfully unaware earlier recording. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. What? The ring. remains in mourning after the death of Superman. Violence, acts of war, and terrorism are all on the rise. I had a dream. It was the end of the world. Invasion. I think it's something more. Something darker. We're asking people we don't know to risk their lives. Strong man as strong as alone. You ever heard that? That's not a saying. That's the opposite of what the saying is. Divided. We are not enough. The world needs Superman. I made him a promise. This is why I brought you together. Ride ain't over yet. My man.
as a bat signal. That's your, oh, shh, sorry. That's your signal. That means we have to go now. Yeah, that's, that's what that means. It's so cool. So while not a lot of all new footage, it packs an emotional punch, gives us more Superman, and tells a story like a miniature movie. It feels pedantic pointing this out, but the voiceover expresses the clear ideas, motifs, and themes which get expressed in the imagery. It comes in several flowing segments. First, we have the world without Superman. Second, the rising threat in that context. Third, the heroes alone. Fourth, them failing alone. Fifth, becoming superheroes, sixth, together, and seventh, a celebration. So in broad strokes, the story and the ideas are being laid out, and we'll link up the imagery as we break down the trailer. But before we get into that, one more overview topic that I want to talk about is the respect being shown to Superman. This isn't Superman's film. He's not in the advertising, not just to enhance the return, but to also avoid false advertising. No, this is a movie about the first five who follow in his footsteps. But he's far from forgotten. I don't need to tell Tell you how precious every fraction of a second or every frame is in a trailer. And yet, a full third of this trailer opens with Superman, not to mention his later mentions midway through. And of course, we all know Superman will be in the film, and I have faith that we'll be happy and have to reconsider our lists of top Superman cinematic moments when it's all said and done. And that's how it should be. Superman started the universe, but it's not his alone. But let's talk about expectations later. For now, let's move on to the breakdown. So again, I love how much respect they're showing Superman by the slow, silent build through the logos to really give this moment pause and time to breathe. That simple act of pacing enhances the serenity it conveys. And with the swell of the theme and Lois's wistful smile, I'm definitely moved. For half a second in the back of my mind, I heard the cries of people outraged at exposing his return. But when Lois teleports into the cornfield with Clark appearing right behind him, I come to think that it's a dream where time and space aren't rigidly required. Clark smiles and we get that clear, deep voice. And I well up as Lois is as lost as I am. What? The Ring we see that iconic shot from BVS, and I'm hit right in the feels, I admit it. And I know what's coming, because the music is whooshing her towards waking up, and that's what happens. He's missing from her side, and she can't sleep. So, before we shift from this, what a strong way to start, right? Even if you can't appreciate the loss of Superman from a larger symbolic perspective, it's hard not to sympathize with the heartache Lois must feel, and how much it reveals about her acutely personal pain. If we accept dreams as representations of our unconscious truths and perceptions, consider how Lois sees Clark. The setting is to her Clark at his truest self, not in their first Arctic meeting, not wearing the crest and the cape, not as a bespectacled urban journalist, but as a humble flannel-garbed farm boy out in a cornfield. We know this is also how Clark sees himself from the dream machine interrogation scene in Man of Steel. So she's seen who he really is. And his line, I'll take that as a yes, represents their relationship of unspoken understanding. And where words can, ironically, confuse the issue. Him saying that causes her to say, 
What? But assuming that this is a dream and taking this as her unconscious feelings is all the more bittersweet because it means that she's engaged in her heart, that she did say yes, and that all that future potential and possibility has been taken from her. Lois doesn't live with the same knowledge and certainty that we do of his return. Of course, that audience information, that dramatic irony doesn't trivialize her suffering and instead it acts as hope. Our special knowledge and certitude means that something that is only a dream to Lois, to us, is a potential reality to look forwards to. I mean, we don't know for a fact that Superman is returning, not in a scientific sense, not until we've seen it or observed it ourselves. But we have faith based on evidence and experience and indications, and perhaps that can give us a little insight into the same hope and comfort felt by those that have the same feeling of certitude towards an afterlife and the opportunity to see lost loved ones again. One more indication that it could be a dream is from the corn, it appears to be early June, but everyone in the film seems to be wearing heavier clothing for that. That season. But costume design is fast and loose in that area, so take it with a grain of salt. Last thing before we get to the voiceover, in keeping with the continuity of BVS, we see Lois's apartment is adorned with African art. And Lois doesn't strike me as somebody prone to such appropriations just because it looks neat. I'd like to think that it's there because it means something to her, and that in turn, it means that she has meaningful ties to Africa. The kind of ties that she could and would develop in conflict zones, which could lead her and the CIA to believe that she and she alone was able to get to Amajog. I mean, we know it was a setup by Lex, but for that setup to work, it had to arise credibly out of Lois's credentials, for her to believe it and for the CIA to believe it too. So that small piece of apartment art could show that Lois isn't just blowing smoke when she talks about flak jackets. Okay, on to the voiceover of a reporter citing a rise in violence, acts of war, and terrorism as we see the Tower Bridge in London again and the World Without Hope headline. So all of this is setting the stage. We have Lois's deeply personal pain, but we know the entire world is also in mourning. A common question raised by the rise of violence, war, and terror is how is that precipitated by Superman's death? We never saw him directly counter those things in the film prior, so isn't such mourning or effect specious or unearned? No, of course not. The easy apologetic, not that I agree with this one, mind you, is that Superman simply did all of those things during his tenure. He stopped crime, war, and terrorism directly. We didn't see it, but that would account for the causal connection being reported. However, while that sort of works, I think it undermines the paternal restraint demonstrated by Superman early in his career. Instead, to me, this is a fairly direct reference to Nietzschean philosophy, showing that even the more straightforward Justice League is still going to have interesting layers to discuss. For more on this, listen to the end notes at the end of the episode. So moving on from the world without Superman to the second of seven parts, here we have the rising threat. Bruce says, I had a dream, and we get the Old Bailey exterior shot explosion, tears and terror on the faces of the children inside, and on that point, I've seen people push back on the idea that we're at the Old Bailey because there's children inside arguing why would children be at a courthouse, and as mentioned back in episode 54, the Old Bailey is a historic location, and indeed you can arrange for class tours there right on the Old Bailey's website. I'm hammering this point about the locale not to say, see I told you so, but so that 
proper credit is due to the UK, London, and the Old Bailey location specifically. The UK has been critical for and good to DC films across the board, and when they open a historic location like this for filming for the first time, or when London's signature skyline keeps appearing in the trailers, I want to make sure that it's appreciated. Okay, then we get the line, it was the end of the world. We see Steppenwolf's scenes which are cut to concisely show the threat in an incredibly visceral way. A lush green valley dotted with wildflowers and a clear blue sky is, with a single strike, transformed into a horrific hellscape. Rivers of fire, clouds of smoke and ash, burning embers, while a man is transformed before our eyes. Is this war? Diana emotes one fraught word, invasion. And for a split second, we see something even more enormous in scope, darkness literally spreading across the earth. I think it's something more, something darker. The young girl is a reminder of the stakes of innocent onlookers powerless to protect themselves. In the reverse shot, we see a cloud of parademons ejecting from a cooling tower in seemingly insurmountable numbers. And honestly, I'm not sure how they can take on such a force without some kind of contrivance. But you know what? I take that back. I'm worried about contrived force, but we have a Justice League member, which is exactly that incarnate. The Flash is the Speed Force, and I wouldn't be surprised if the clouds of enemies weren't somehow handled between the fastest man alive and maybe the last son of Krypton. Purely speculating, I expect this film to go full comic book, so I'm less concerned about these kind of objections this go around. And let's pause to take in Batman's dialogue. Batman acknowledging the dream in BVS is a payoff for a scene that could have been taken as a paranoid fever dream, but now it acts as a quiet concern he takes seriously. Batman's says the lines solemnly, and he swallows slightly at the end of his delivery. This is a transformed man. He doesn't have that same manic quality where he would turn a 1% chance into a certainty. He's tempered by being wrong before. He's been humbled, but no less convicted something is coming. Alone, he's powerless to face it, but instead of that driving him to the dark places he went in BVS, here he's reaching out, bouncing his thoughts and fears off Diana, wanting to work together. Seriously, this is a transformed man. Like Superman has done, he's relying upon consultation and cooperation. So who is Batman going to turn to? We move to the third part, the heroes alone. Diana responds, we're asking people we don't know to risk their lives, and we're shown our heroes one by one, separate and alone. Batman gazing at the bat signal into the sky, Aquaman underwater, Wonder Woman atop Lady Justice, Cyborg sitting alone in the dark, and Flash smiling broadly. Diana understands the threat. She understands it's a risk to their lives. Who knows what adventures she's had in the intervening century, but certainly we know from her first foray into saving the world what that meant the loss of her beloved Antiope, the death of Steve Trevor, and though she barely knew him, the death of Superman in her last effort to save the world. How many more had to die? Can't they take this burden from them? So the line is revealing some of Diana's psychology, but also a part of the story and character arc. These are people we don't know. People without a duty or expectation. People being asked to step up and save the world like Superman. To be a superhero. And through this film, we'll see the start of those journeys. Unlike another assembly of heroes, this isn't under the auspices of paramilitary authority or a warrior's duty. So it seems like we're going to get a little more of each individual character rather than just following orders or a warrior's code, even if they're being called to fight as warriors. And before we get to author's exchange with Bruce, let's just quickly comment on these shots. With Batman coming out of isolation and reconnecting with others, we get Gordon. 
Gordon expanding his supporting cast and rounding out the mythos further. And the Batman iconography in that next shot is off the charts. A quick shout out to all those hardworking visual effects houses, teams, and workers. We appreciate your hard work on these films that are going to be enjoyed by millions for years to come. So thank you. We're so thankful and we can't wait to sit through the credits to cheer on your contributions. Okay, so those great effects, of course, apply also to Aquaman's shot and really just every frame of the film. We see Wonder Woman atop Lady Justice, which crowns the old Bailey in London and is mentioned in episode 54. For this Lady Justice does not wear a blindfold. As a completely unfounded stretch, one way you can take the unblindfolded justice is as the smallest indication of the more optimistic outlook of these films going forwards. Consider, in a purely cynical world, there is no ideal of justice to aspire to because the world is unjust. In a realistic world, we strive for justice, but will settle for blindness as a proxy for objectivity. However, the ideal that we hope for is the world can be just without needing to be blind. For more on Lady Justice and the philosophy of justice, listen in on the end notes after the episode is over. Okay, with Cyborg, we could talk all day about this shot. I especially have diegetic questions about that display, but obviously the scene conveys melancholy. Wearing his hood up is meant to keep him covered, disguised, ashamed, even in the solitude of his own home. And yet that disguise is incomplete. He wears his alteration on his face and with his mechanical hands. No one who is happy and comfortable with themselves sits in the dark reflecting on a lost life and past glories. Ones that were so much a part of his life that they pepper the room, but ones that he thinks he'll never have again. And finally, we have Flash's infectious smile in Heroes Park. What's bringing about that reaction? Okay, turning to that exchange between Arthur and Bruce, the strong man is strongest alone. Ever hear that? That's not a saying. That's the opposite of what the saying is. So despite the joke of Bruce's protest, I love that this actually is a saying, unlike it's all downhill after the first kiss, little boys are born with no inclination to share, and whatever they say about the crazy ones. So thank you for actually using a saying as a saying. I'll explore that more in the end notes. Taken at face value, though, it's a statement about self-reliance and perhaps a lack of leverage, weakness, or dependence on others. And again, without going into all the philosophy in our endnotes, this is a quote from a philosopher who influenced Nietzsche, who in turn developed his ideal of the will to power and the Ubermensch. And if we went back to BVS before the Martha moment, Bruce would have wholeheartedly agreed with author. The world didn't make sense, so he forced it to. The laws of man were meaningless, so he was a criminal. He's bound only by his own will, so he can create new rules for himself as he wills. That Bruce was not playing well with others. He's lying to Alfred and defying his counsel to do what he wills. And in all, it allows him to come close to killing a god. However, BVS is hardly an endorsement of this. Instead, I feel that it's an indictment, and Bruce is arguably an example of the philosophy's failure. Again, we'll go into this in the end notes, but it's just another example of Bruce's transformation that he's abandoned that way of thinking and doesn't consider it colloquial wisdom anymore. It certainly works as a straightforward joke, but it's also philosophically and psychologically interesting and gives me hope that Justice League will have hidden depth to appreciate.
onto the fourth part, each failing alone. Bruce says, divided, we are not enough. And here, I don't think the scenes are literally the heroes divided in every case, but I think you can take them each out of context as an abstract example of them individually failing. Batman's is the most abstract in that sense. And if I'm honest, I'm completely shoehorning it in. But basically, you see the scope of the situation. The entire world is turning red in a fire. And here you have this finite weapon dropping shell casings. And what's that going to do against all of that? Even the explosive rapport of the cannon is impotent compared to the fire erupting from the ground. Okay, so the rest of them are way more direct. Flash seems to have stumbled. His foot falls short of the step. Aquaman is slammed into a pillar and overpowered. Cyborg is screaming and seemingly overcome. And Wonder Woman looks absolutely awesome taking Steppenwolf on alone. But in the last frames of that sequence, she's fallen. And as a side note to that, it's interesting that none of the parademons are engaging. I wonder why. Do the new gods spare some of the single combat tendencies of the old gods, causing Steppenwolf to tell his minions to hold their fire while he fights? We shall see. Moving on, part 5 of 7, Becoming Superheroes. Bruce says the world needs Superman, and the implications are clear. A Metropolis officer at Heroes Park looks to the sky. Bruce, looking at Superman's hologram, and we're reminded of the Citizens Monument to Superman. The theme for this section is clear. It's time for these disparate powered beings to step up and be a part of that monument to be like superheroes. And we get a montage of shots which could be hero moments for them all. I'm completely speculating, but obviously the Wonder Woman kickflip of her fallen sword is beyond cool. But I also think it's Wonder Woman being who the League needs her to be. The God Killer. The others can't kill without controversy, without sacrifice but Wonder Woman does it by divine right, by culture and upbringing, and by the audience's tacit approval. In that scene, the red skies have cleared, sunlight streams through the cooling tower, and the air sparkles with particulate agitated by their conflict. Add to that Wonder Woman's look of determination, and I feel like this is her about to administer the coup de grace. In any case, this is the kind of burden that Wonder Woman can take for the team and a necessary evil in some cases. With Cyborg, we've seen that he's managed to survive and stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Steppenwolf. And as he sets off into the skies with a determined look, I guarantee he's off to be a hero and not just running from a fight. We see Flash running his heart out and Batman prepared to take on an alien dome as he reaffirms his oath to Superman. Again, he's ready to give his life because Batman has always had the heart of a hero, despite a detour of those convictions in BVS. And finally, we're shown that Arthur is no fish out of water, hopelessly flopping about on dry land, gulping to breathe. This king of the seas is fearless in the skies or surfing asphalt at 70 miles an hour. And this transitions us into our sixth and second to last part together. That's why I brought you together. Because together we're strong. Together we're what the world needs. Together we're like Superman. It's the tiniest glimpse into their teamwork, but it completes their arc in this miniature marketing film and hints at their larger arc in the full film. None of them are alone anymore, and all of them are able to fulfill more of their potential 
altogether. Victor's accident took away his team, his glory. He'd never throw another winning football pass. But as Cyborg, he's got a new team. He's soaring through the skies, ready to catch you. You can rely on him. And he gets to pass Aquaman like a football with far higher stakes. Aquaman can't claim to be the strongest alone. With Cyborg, he's reached new heights. He's on target and he's in for the ride of his life. Batman is having his armor peeled away, but here he's playing well with others and saved by Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman was hesitant to involve others. She always wants to lead the charge because she knows she can handle it. She did that on No Man's Land and at the first assembly of the Trinity. She was the first to fly forward against Doomsday. Here, she saves Batman and is able to trust him to lead a charge. Seeing the age of heroes come again, she can see Batman as an example of mankind she can stand with. Among these heroes, the Wonder Woman isn't alone. Finally, Flash flies by nearly too fast to register, but it's in the direction of Batman's charge. He isn't running away, he's running towards. So even in that split second, it's the culmination of an arc for him. And admittedly, this is absurd over analysis. But the art of telling a story through a trailer is using scraps of out-of-context clips, which are often intentionally more abstract than actual. Some of this will carry over into the actual film in context, but some of this won't work with the full picture. But that's okay, because practicing this kind of interpretation can make a work more meaningful and engaging than simply dismissing its visceral layer. <laughs> which is exactly what I'm going to do for the seventh and final part, simply for the sake of shortening the show. The seventh part is disconnected from the arc of the trailer, and it acts as both straightforward humor as well as metatextual celebration of what we just saw. On its face, the scene is funny, engaging, and the performances are great. I love all their subtle facial expressions. It also gives us more of Barry's character and shows us that Central City is a flying distance away from Gotham, that Barry is new to Gotham, and, in a humorous way, it sets the stakes for Bruce and Diana. In a war against an alien invasion, this is their first and only recruit. Beggars can't be choosers. Well, out of context, he's also providing our point of view. He's reacting to what we've seen and celebrating with us. And absolutely, I'm all in. And that's it. That's my analysis. If you estimate how much we've seen, there's still a large fraction of the film held in reserve for when you finally watch it in November. We know that there's going to be a hero moment for each character, some exceptional action, dialogue, character arcs, and the return of Superman. As a finite piece of work with a finite amount of screen time, you gotta keep your expectations in check, but as a stepping stone into a multiverse of infinite possible stories, I'm absolutely excited to see it. Every team of film is always a tension between the individual threads and the harmonious whole. And sure, I'd love an hour for each character, but I rationally realize that it can't possibly contain everything that I've ever imagined or wished for. And yet, again and again, the thing about these films is that they managed to show me something I never expected or knew that I wanted, and I've been all the richer for it. So be excited, be hopeful, anticipate eagerly, but also check your expectations and assumptions of entitlement. Let the film tell you what it is instead of immediately walking out of the theater comparing it to the movie in your mind. You'll enjoy it much more that way and appreciate all the hard work, effort, and intentionality put into it. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. 
Alrighty, if you're still here, that means you're interested in totally tangential material, unfit for a properly edited show. <laughs> it takes too long to process all those tangents, so I basically listen to them, try to sum them up, and then restate them here. That way, I can just let them go. Otherwise, I find myself trying to fit them back into the episodes forever, and the transitions just get too obnoxious and overbearing. Like, last episode, I had this transition where you start at the top of a hill, then go to a church steeple, to a drone, to a spy satellite, and then intending to end up with that overview effect. And I had a bunch of different takes and ended up forgetting to put one in the actual episode. And to be honest, it was better for it. But that said, I still love a lot of these tangents that I cut out. So these endnotes at least give me an opportunity to mention them. So in terms of how the episode originally ended, originally it was less about expectation management and more about managing pre-release reception discussions and advocacy. In other words, how to encourage people to see Justice League. It borrowed ideas from psychological research surrounding the subreddit Change My View on ways to discuss these films with detractors to encourage them to see Justice League with an open mind at least. And as a threshold question, how to spot somebody who's at least open to discussion before you decide to engage. However, upon reflection, I felt that that discussion was too tied to Reddit to be broadly applied in conversation. But for fun, the five main bullet points were one, never arouse or insult. Once you get their guard up, they're much less likely to listen to you. Two, pin down your points. Make sure you know what your message is and stay on message. Three, lateral attack and novel arguments work better than direct opposition. Instead of fighting directly point by point everything they say, when you come at them from the side and give them a thought that they've never considered and never thought about, they're more likely to be convinced or agree with you. Four, cap your back and forth to about five rounds or exchanges. Basically, going much more beyond five exchanges makes it much more statistically likely that you're just spinning your wheels, and you might be better served moving on to someone more likely to be convinced. And fifth, use bullet points, links, analogy, and illustration. For people who are actually open to conversation and discussion, actually providing resources, information, and concrete resources can be persuasive. And hopefully, you'll consider my podcast one of those resources. So links in the show notes on all that research. Another cut that was only partially recorded but had extensive notes was regarding Superman and the League historically. Basically how traditionally Superman was not always synonymous with the League. And in several iterations, he came to it later than others. Which is to say that there is a tradition of Superman acting as a capstone to the League that is a culmination or a crown jewel and completion of that head council. But that always had the side effect of making Superman seem too aloof, uninvolved, and superior to the League, that they practically had to grovel to get him to join. On the flip side, the common alternative is to have Superman as a founder of the League, which sometimes had the unfortunate effect of making the other applicants seem like also rands to the Trinity or the Big Five or the Central Seven. Tonight, countless superheroes came out to prove they have what it takes to impress our panel of judges, Batman, Superman, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman. The search has officially begun to find out who can fill one very important position on the Justice League. Batman, you like me, right? Oh, this was my dream, my one shot at the Justice League. <laughs> 
And so that makes the approach taken by the Cinematic Justice League absolutely amazing because it allows Superman to be both the cornerstone in the formation of the League and a capstone to unite the Seven without making him aloof or making the others also rants. The League is formed in his wake. It's inspired by him, so he gets the benefit of being a cornerstone without actually being there. But when the chips are down and the world needs him, he returns as a capstone to the completed League, and he was absent by circumstances and not choice. The downside to this approach is, of course, that Superman isn't there, but that's true of capstone approaches generally. And as I stated in the episode, his absence serves as a reminder that while Superman started the superhero universe, it's not his universe, nor should it be. Superman serves as an inspiration for all caped characters, who could each carve out their own corners to enjoy without necessarily Superman actually having to be in all their comics. Justice League is the start of a diverse universe that's only beginning. So as much as you know I love Superman, this is a launchpad for a world that anyone can play in. So regarding my notes, I have a ton, I mean a ton of research to historically back up all those assertions, but that would be better served in its own episode. Believe me, I've been researching this particular angle for ages in anticipation of Superman fan anxieties about Justice League. Similar to the Cold Breath episode, I have multimedia breakdowns, issue citations across the ages, rosters of every instance of the League, as well as how Superman joins, if and when he does, and how they arrive at the name of the team. But rather than just cram all of that just to make a point in this episode, I'm going to save that outline for someday after Justice League. But really, the respect and the gravity given to Superman in the lead-up to Justice League has, for me, negated the need to calm those concerns with citations from the past. So well done, marketing team. Okay, enough on that. I had a quick footnote on power overlap. I can't wait to parse all these powers eventually, but one cool thing about the amount of power overlap is that it demands that they really stand out as characters and that their hero moments really show off their strengths. When 70% of your team can reliably lift a car overhead, you know you're going to be in for something special when the filmmakers decide that they need to show you what strength really means. And I had a bunch of points about Steppenwolf's powers and Amazonian super jumping, but let's just skip that for now. Um, For Lady Justice, again, I have loads of research facts and tidbits, but I think I'm going to save most of these for a Justice League analysis after the fact. Um, Lady Justice, she's descended from prior traditional goddesses, and therefore she acts as an intercessor between the traditions of natural law and positive law. And under a broad brush, you could say that natural law is described as arising by God, nature, or reason, whereas positive law are human acts of legislation. And as a demigod and as an immortal, Diana plays these roles as a bridge between the divine and mortal, the ancient and the moderate. So some other time, we'll talk about all those symbols, the scales, the sword, the blindfold, and the history. Let's get to author and Bruce's exchange over sayings. I want to dig into this because it illustrates a point about philosophy, which you probably hear me say again and again, which is soundbite slogans expressed as absolutes. Collecting and conveying wisdom isn't easy, but it's often accomplished in the form of proverbs, sayings, or idioms. It's incumbent on those listening and using those proverbs to understand that they are conditional and contextual probabilities rather than absolute predictions or promises. If you take them as absolutes, you'll quickly see that common sayings contradict. Absence makes the heart grow fonder versus out of sight, out of mind. Better safe than sorry versus nothing ventured, nothing gained. Actions speak louder than words versus the pen is mightier than the sword. 
However, if you apply just a little context and appreciate these as principles rather than absolute rules, you can distinguish when one applies and the other doesn't. What opposing maxims, adages, and aphorisms indicate is that wisdom is elusive, nuanced, and complex, and it's developed through experience in its application. Aristotle defines happiness not as maximizing the balance of pleasure over pain, but as an activity, an activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. Why can't we just learn good moral principles at home or in a philosophy class or from a book, live according to those principles, those rules, those precepts, and leave it at that? Aristotle says virtue isn't acquired that way. Virtue is only something we can acquire by practicing, by exercising the virtues. It's the kind of thing we can only learn by doing. It doesn't come from book learning. In this respect, it's like flute playing. You couldn't learn how to play a musical instrument well just by reading a book about it. You have to practice and you have to listen to other accomplished flute players. There are other practices and skills of this type. Cooking. There are cookbooks, but no great chef ever learns how to cook by reading a cookbook only. It's the kind of thing you only learn by doing. Joke telling is probably another example of this kind. No great comedian learns to be a comedian just by reading a book on the principles of comedy. It wouldn't work. Now, why not? What do joke telling and cooking and playing a musical instrument have in common such that we can't learn them just by grasping a precept or a rule that we might learn from a book or a lecture? What they have in common is that they are all concerned with discerning particulars, particular features of a situation. And no rule, no precept could tell the comedian or the cook or the great musician how to get in the habit of, the practice of, discerning the particular features of a situation. Aristotle says virtue is that way too. Along those lines, you can see how Clark cultivated his call to action during his 16 years of wandering. It wasn't learning just dumped into his brain or assuming that he'd be a hero when tested. No, Clark spent 16 years anonymously saving people such that he'd be ready to do it on the world stage one day. But getting back to philosophy, I think that might be a better test of any given philosophy than the appeal or consistency of its axioms. Many philosophers spend their adult lives in thought, debating other philosophers in creating their own frameworks, but far fewer go beyond the thought experiment, embody their ideals, and live lives worth emulating. This isn't to say if their lives were sad or even despicable in some cases that they have no wisdom to share. Wisdom can come from anywhere, but you should have a healthy skepticism of any one mortal individual who alleges to have answered all of life's questions. Considering how many of these ideas have been endlessly discussed and debated, that suggests that if you are 100% certain of any particular philosophy, you most likely haven't fully grasped all its implications yet or explored its challenges. And this seems especially true true for regimes which sought to adopt a form of Nietzschean ideas. Whenever we bump up on things like these, I feel a certain anxiety because I want a common foundation before proceeding for fear of miscommunication or mischaracterization. I believe Nietzsche to be largely misunderstood and far more nuanced than his popular portrayal, and I hate to contribute to common confusions about his offerings. But at the same time, I still think he's a dead end, and I'll risk that confusion for the sake of concision. Nietzsche's single most accurate prediction helps explain why there's a rise in violence, war, and terror after Superman's death. 
As I mentioned in the episode, it could be that Superman just directly intervened in these events, but to me, it's commentary on that infamous Nietzschean observation, God is dead. First, that statement isn't literal. If God is real, man cannot kill him, and if God is a lie, there's nothing to kill. What Nietzsche was referring to was a decline in the belief in God as axiomatic of most Judeo-Christian morality. Second, that statement is not a celebration or a triumphant declaration, but rather a prediction of where the world was headed. With the rise of Darwinism, shifts in political power away from aristocracy, there was a decline in appreciating the reasons underlying our morality. Sort of like putting up Christmas trees annually without really knowing why you're doing it. Nietzsche argued, as we began to rely purely upon reason or a state of nature, we would realize that many of the affectations of our morality are based primarily in a belief in God. And in that sense, morality was arbitrary and unreal. And that this was something dawning upon Western civilization. And with our moral foundations so unmoored, humanity would desperately seek a replacement. And in many ways, his was correct. The state rose up and was granted a godlike station as a replacement for religion, and mankind swung wildly between extremes and bouts of nihilism to the death and suffering of millions. Essentially, absent the Ubermensch, death and disorder is Nietzsche's expected outcome after the death of God. Remember from our discussion about invisibility and accountability last episode, Nietzsche posits that if there is no supreme power and no ultimate accounting for your actions, might some of society unravel. But then how does all of this apply to Superman, who isn't a literal god, isn't all-knowing, or all-powerful? Well, despite all the philosophizing, in practical terms, Nietzsche is simply predicting the effects of a power vacuum and the omnipresent significance of belief in a great power. Since his predictions hinge on belief, Nietzsche's observation does not actually require absolute omnipotent power, or even actual power, since Nietzsche himself did not believe that God was real. That did not take away the effect of the belief. For Nietzsche, God was a concept. His thought experiment God is not relational, personal, or interactive, but abstract power. And that abstraction is interchangeable with belief in other great powers, similar to how the state could come to replace God. The state need not be omnipotent, simply powerful enough to become the foundations of your morality. And we can see similar effects even in a secular worldview, devoid of the divine or after. Afterlife. Consider social media. Maybe your secret sins aren't recorded in an eternal holy ledger or the book of life, but there still exists a sort of digital immortality on the internet. Your actions there and in life can be published, preserved, and publicized for all to see and for all time online. And like with belief in divine accountability, belief in internet immortality could give people pause to consider how they conduct themselves or consider the United States as a military military superpower. With over 800 military bases around the world, the world's largest nuclear arsenal, and military spending over $600 billion annually, which is more than the next seven highest spending countries combined, that military power obviously affects how the rest of the world conducts its affairs. Similarly, even if Superman is largely restraining his power as one of the most powerful beings on the planet, his presence would affect how people conduct themselves. You 
wouldn't want to participate in any actions which might invite his presence or intervention against you. In this Nietzschean prediction, just as people may be moral in the sight of their God, or to avoid being ostracized online eternally, or aware of American military involvement, the scope of Superman's power could affect order purely by his presence. So with his death, you see the descent of society as Nietzsche would predict. Nietzsche was obsessed with strength. Nietzsche believed that pity, mercy, and compassion, especially as it arose from Judeo-Christian values, represented tools of the weak meant to bind the strong and which prevented the strong from ever obtaining true morality. It was a view of strength that focused on the individual, similar to that saying by Friedrich Schiller, the strong man is strongest alone. This obsession with strength was easily co-opted and corrupted by Adolf Hitler, who would quote Schiller in Mein Kampf, entitling a chapter, The Strong Man is Mightiest Alone. The Third Reich persecuted and murdered minorities, social groups, and the weak deemed undesirable. But I've digressed too much on a failure. Let's focus on a superior alternative illustrated by Superman. Superman is a philosophical entity. Why is his motto truth and justice? These are the essential building blocks of philosophy. Truth embodies what is. Justice embodies what ought to be. How you approach these things define your philosophy. For example, if you append the American way, you imply that is how things ought to be. Or if you call yourself the champion of the oppressed, you ingrain mercy into your mission. This altruism and compassion makes Superman anti to the Ubermensch and similar philosophies. Justice is an impossibly broad topic, and Superman's framework is highly adaptable and historically variable. But let's look at justice as framed by those Judeo-Christian values scorned by Nietzsche. How well does Superman fit? Philosopher Nicholas Wolterstoff coined the phrase, the quartet of the vulnerable, in his book, Justice, Rights and Wrongs, summing up a verse from Zechariah. Quote, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. End quote. So the quartet of the vulnerable are made up of the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Or you could say the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. In an agrarian patriarchal society, we can sum those up as those who are disconnected from land and family or societal structures of value, security, and power. While Superman could hardly be considered powerless, consider how this version connects deeply with the quartet of the vulnerable. He grew up in a small rural community, and he spent most of his adult life as an itinerant worker. We don't think of busboys, deckhands, or baggage handlers as wealthy, and the same holds for his mother who worked retail and then as a waitress. Why aren't we covering this? Poor people don't buy papers? <laughs> Perry, when you assign a story, you're making a choice about who matters. And who's worth it? He was orphaned once and fatherless twice over. Clark knows what it means to be disconnected from his people and not have a clear path set before him to simply inherit his father's farm as his future. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. The immigration narratives with Superman are well established, and he knows what it is to want to be a part of the people despite coming from somewhere else, to want to contribute despite facing opposition. I grew up in Kansas, General. About as American as it gets. Look, I'm here to help. And finally, Clark is not a widow, but the two most important people in his life have been. Martha was widowed, and emotionally, Lois was widowed when he died. 
through loving them, he would have the utmost compassion for the widow, as explicitly shown in BVS when he takes up the cause of Santos's widow. Even if he was a criminal, even if she was poor, even if she was a marginalized minority, Clark took up her cause. Clark identifies deeply and personally with the powerless, and accordingly, he takes up their causes. All this time, I've been living my life the way my father saw it, mining wrongs for a ghost, thinking I'm here to do good. Just the dream of a farmer from Kansas. This is a view of justice, how things ought to be, where the marginalized, the powerless, the vulnerable, and the oppressed are to be protected. Note how caring for the quartet of the vulnerables, because God told you to, is an anathema to the will to power and the ubermensch. And yet, for thousands of years, mercy has been coupled with justice in our holy texts. In Micah 6, 8, quote, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. End quote. In other translations, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So, you're righting wrongs while protecting and upholding the weak, yet foregoing what wrongdoers deserve. Because, remembering your own failings and the grace given you, who are you to judge? One of the reasons that Wonder Woman resonates with audiences so much is how it illustrates these ancient values so clearly. Diana obviously seeks justice, to restore the world to peace, to rid it of evil, to protect mankind from the tyranny of Ares, and to fight for the oppressed. Then I'm willing to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. And yet, she shows mercy. Diana does not execute Dr. Maru, despite what the villain deserves. Look at her and tell me I'm wrong. She is the perfect example of these humans, and unworthy of your sympathy in every way. Destroy her, Diana. Know that she deserves it. They all do. And Diana does not forsake mankind, despite what they deserve. They do not deserve your protection! It's not about deserve. And that mercy is born of humility. Diana is able to embrace mercy after following in her mother's footsteps and understanding mankind's failings, but also the failings of her own kind, the gods like Ares and the Amazons like Hippolyta, and ultimately herself. Her own innocence, then loss of faith, then anger, but giving over to love instead of hate. The final monologue of the film is Diana acknowledging with humility her role in saving the world is secondary to the essential role of love. I used to want to save the world, to end war and bring peace to mankind. But then I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light and learned that inside every one of them, there will always be both. A choice each must make for themselves, something no hero will ever defeat. And now I know that only love can truly save the world. This is an almost perfect depiction of this value system's justice and why it's so fitting that Wonder Woman should be depicted along Lady Justice in the film. And of course, these map onto the rest of the Justice League and the world's finest. But rather than take you through that point by point, I just want to make a quick aside about mercy. One of the most profound examples of undeserved mercy is Superman saving Lex from his own abomination, meant to kill Superman. 
And I just want to underline that mercy and grace does not mean you condone the recipient. Jorel saving the Kryptonian Codex does not mean he thinks society should be ordered around it. Wonder Woman refusing to kill Dr. Maru does not mean that she approves or accepts, contributes, or condones chemical warfare or innocents killed. Superman saving Lex does not mean that he supports or stands by, encourages or endorses slander, bombings, kidnappings, and killings. For all the evil in the world, Wonder Woman or Superman saving the world does not mean that they want or welcome all of that evil when they save it. They're not blind to the evil or ignoring it. How could they be? The injuries that they suffered at the hands of Maru or Luthor are deeply personal, and both suffer deep disappointment in seeing how fallen mankind can be. Maybe people aren't always good. Maybe it, it's just it's who they are. My mother was right. She said the world of men do not deserve you. They don't deserve our help. It's, 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 not, it's not about deserve. deserve. It's not, maybe, maybe we don't. But, but it's not about that. It's about what you believe. You don't think I get it after what I've seen out there? You don't think I wish I could tell you that it was one bad guy to blame? It's not. Uh, we're all to blame. No, rather, saving the world is a statement about themselves and their beliefs. They are heroes who would rather support and save what is worthy in the world rather than let it burn because of what unworthy elements exist within. And even with almost entirely unworthy enemies like Maru or Luthor, it is a statement about how important mercy is as a value to them, to their own character, to the state of their own hearts, to save the entirely undeserving. Of course, we just wish it it was simple. We wish everything was entirely worthy, without fault, without controversy, without stain, divide, or undesired narratives. But I just wish it was more simple. My baby boy. Nothing was ever simple. So one last segment where I talk about one thing while I talk about another thing. <laughs> Let's look at justice and humility using Superman's cinematic history and sexism. I won't get graphic or off color, but listener discretion may be advised. You know that I'm a Superman fan and I hold the whole history of Superman in esteem. However, one area where there is cause for humility and which challenges the allegation that Superman was always this perfect paragon of virtue throughout his history and a cross incarnations is in regards to sexism and relationships. Don't get me wrong, I'm not hunting out opportunities to be offended, but I'm highlighting changing times. Superman 78 has a number of instances of sexism. A fruit vendor catcalls and infantilizes a pedestrian by calling her baby. Miss Tessmacher casually anticipates domestic abuse. A meteorite found in Addis Ababa. Uh, I know I'm going to get wrapped in the mouth for this, but so what? and a military authority leers at the opportunity to molest an unconscious woman in an accident situation, her attractiveness overriding consent and her medical condition. He's having trouble breathing, sir. What do you think? Well, I suggest a uh, vigorous chest massage. If that doesn't work, mouth-to-mouth. Uh, uh, -mouth. Yes, sir. Sergeant. I won't have one of my men doing anything I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. Yeah, but sir. And finally, power over and attraction to Superman justify taking a kiss from him, explicitly intending to circumvent his consent. Why did you kiss me first? It's, I didn't think you'd let me later. 
Of course, none of this was committed by Clark, so it's all right, right? Well, unfortunately, he commits questionable acts as well. If Clark's bumbling is an act, while Lois is reaching over her desk, Clark bumps into her and in the process, his hand falls on the front of her skirt. She immediately jerks up and looks at him like, what was that? And again, if the bumbling is an act, that means the contact was not accidental. Committing to a course of action where you end up touching your co-worker's pelvis is not okay. Consent and privacy seem to be a reoccurring issue. Later, Clark recites the contents of Lois's purse, intended as a joke. Well, really, Lois? Supposing that man has shot you. Is it worth risking your life over $10, two credit cards, a hairbrush, and a lipstick? How did you know that? You know what? You just described the exact contents of my purse. Hmm. Um, wild guess. It's dramatic irony because we know he used his x-ray vision, but he searched Lois's private belongings without her knowledge or consent, and people have an expectation of privacy to such belongings. Clark isn't entitled to know if Lois is taking medication, has contraception, carries personal protection, or any number of other private matters which could be revealed in the search of her purse. On another occasion, after expressing romantic interest in Lois and being turned down, he bumbles his way into the lady's bathroom after her where she intends to change her clothes. Oh, hi, Clark. Good night. Uh, Lois? Have you, have you got a minute? Lois, I was wondering if maybe you'd like to have a little dinner with me. Oh, gosh, Clark, I'm sorry. I'm booked. Oh. Can I uh, take you to the airport? Not unless you can fly. <laughs> uh, Clark. Hmm? Lady. Sorry. Thank you. <clears throat> It's all played innocently, which applies if Clark actually was so socially awkward, but we know it's all an act, and accordingly problematic. Okay, but you might say, all of those were as Clark, and that Superman is surely still Sterling, right? I'm afraid not. Leaving aside him stealing a kiss, their first kiss no less, from Lois's corpse, the aggressive flirting during their first interview is extremely sketchy from an ethical perspective. Romancing a source is rife with hazard and generally to be avoided because of the potential issues of power, coercion, and subsequent bias or compromise to journalistic integrity. To begin with, why are most of us at ease with the scene as is? Why does it work for the audience? Well, it's because of our cognitive blind spots. We see things through the lens of hindsight bias and through our pre-existing prejudices. After we come to see that the feelings are reciprocal, we unconsciously apply that retroactively to everything that occurred. We don't worry about the power dynamics, and we brush off cares about biased reporting because we bear an assumption of Superman's absolute righteousness. We're prejudiced in his favor, so we aren't worried about any ethical dilemmas or biased reporting. However, if you reimagine the scene where one party does not reciprocate the attraction, or if you swap their genders or power, the issues may become more apparent. Superman drops in on a private balcony. What if she doesn't want him there? What is her recourse to keep him away or send him away? Next, Superman conducts a medical examination of Lois's lungs without consent. When the interview begins in earnest, Lois takes it down a particular track, starting with his relational status and availability. Obviously, the purpose of this was to sign his availability so that the audience gives her license to fawn all over him. But imagine this in any other professional interview setting. If the interview starts not with with pressing questions or qualifications, but immediately into relational status or romantic availability, that's a problematic approach. Again, flip genders, flip powers, flip reciprocal feelings to illustrate to yourself why this is not the platonic ideal of a professional interview. 
But let's give Lois the benefit of the doubt and move on. Let's say Lois did just mean it as vital statistics and only happened to ask that first. Let's assume that she's completely uninterested and attempting a professional interview. Now let's look at Superman's reply. Are you married? <laughs> uh, no. No, not. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, no, I don't. But, uh... If I did, Miss Lane, you'd be the first to know about it. <laughs> he gives a sly smile and she reciprocates. But imagine if she didn't want to. They're alone, unaccountable. He's made a pass. He's giving her the exclusive of a lifetime and her job depends on it. I want the inside dope on this guy. Now listen to me. Whichever one of you gets it out of is going to wind up with the single most important interview since God talked to Moses. Consider the pressure to reciprocate under those circumstances. The whole thing ceases any semblance of professionalism after that. Lois asks, Oh, I get it. You don't want anyone to know how. Okay. And how big are you? Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, I assume then that the, the rest of your bodily functions are normal. Sorry, I beg your pardon? Well, putting it delicately, mm -hmm. do you eat? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, I do. When I'm hungry. You do? Well then, uh, is it true that uh, you can see through anything? Uh, yes, I can. Oh, well, pretty much. What color underwear am I wearing? Hmm. Assuming Superman hadn't made a pass and was here for a perfectly professional interview, imagine that this Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's going to relate your first ever interview and impression to the world, your first opportunity to answer the public's pressing questions about you, that's your intention, and the interviewer then asks you to look at their underwear. Superman's cinematic track record continues to be questionable over the course of the other films. In brief, Superman 2 has inducing amnesia without express consent. Superman 3 has creepy scenes of Superman under the influence. Superman 4 has the power dynamic issues again with the wealthy boss throwing herself at him, the return of involuntary amnesia and double dating antics. And then Superman Returns has the invasion of privacy and stalking. I don't care how right you once were with your ex or how heartbroken you are that she's moved on. That doesn't give you the right to spy on her without her knowledge, eavesdrop on her conversations, or violate her privacy. Being an ex is not licensed to do these things. Your past relationship doesn't justify it. Your power and your inability to be caught doesn't make it okay. Now, do these issues mean that these movies should be completely condemned and discarded from our collective consciousness? Of course not, but it's worth being aware of them instead of allowing nostalgia to completely cloud our recollection. And awareness allows us to see how we move forwards towards the sun. Let's turn and look at how sexism and sexual harassment are handled in Man of Steel. Instead of perpetuating these issues, Man of Steel confronts and combats them. It doesn't put its head in the sand and pretend that sexism has ceased to exist. We aren't presented with a utopia where we're just all past these issues. Instead, they're in the films because it's in the real world, and Lois Lane has to push back against it again and again, with Hardy and with Amajog and so on. I'm running long, so I'm not going to enumerate all the strong women in positions of leadership and power, but I want to quickly point out how Lombard's decency during the BZE didn't obligate anybody to date him. 
him, and the characters are all comfortable with that. And while repeatedly asking for a pity date or having a reputation for propositioning interns is used to knock him, I do want to point out that he's asking in person, in public, with witnesses, and out in the open where his boss comes right up behind him. Moreover, he's asking for a date to a public event. He's able to take the rejection, he doesn't hold it against Lois, he doesn't turn on her, and he doesn't use the BZE or his seniority to guilt or pressure Jenny into accepting either. I'm not saying that this is a perfect approach, far from it, but Lombard is maybe unfairly cast as sleazy only because his attention is unwanted, not considering how his approach keeps him quite accountable. If anything, Lois errs by directing him towards the intern pool, which ventures back towards those power issues, and she recognizes her mistake as soon as she perceives Jenny and apologizes. <laughs> we definitely don't have time to get into how billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne interacts with ballerinas, pretty girls, anonymous liaisons, and so on. I want to wrap up with an actual incident of sexual harassment in Man of Steel. In the Cassidy Roadhouse scene, the waitress Chrissy is harassed by Ludlow. She's already verbally shut him down. Back off, Ludlow. I'm serious. However, he touches her rear and grabs her wrist, trying to force her to sit with him. It all takes place in the blink of an eye, but note that no one else is stepping in or stopping Ludlow. Chrissy has already been more than clear. She's told him to back off, to knock it off. She's slapped away his hand, tried to pull away, and said, let me go. But Ludlow kept going, and neither of his two friends interfered. None of the other patrons, soldiers, the bartenders, the pool players, acted. But Clark did. In these conditions, Clark knows Chrissy. He's an eyewitness to the events. The rejection and harassment was clear and obvious, and in stepping in, he was acting within the authority of the law, as an employee, and as a friend. Clark stops the harassment and doesn't escalate to violence, despite Lilo's attempts to provoke him. Once the harassment has stopped, there's no more legal authority to act, but Clark may feel compelled to respond as an employee or friend or for himself. However, Chrissy tells him it's not worth it, so the moral authority of acting on her behalf is gone. Retaliating against Ludlow would become personal at that point. While Clark has all the power in the world to physically punish Ludlow, he restrains himself and leaves. In the novelization, he's fired and loses his job confronting Ludlow, who's a regular customer. Up to this point, it's instructive to see that Clark acts immediately. He acts within the sphere of the authority that he has, and he doesn't act beyond it to extract any additional payback despite the power and personal motive to do so. He respects the request of the victim. He doesn't exceed his authority as an employee, and he doesn't break the law. The focus on this form of justice is protecting the vulnerable Chrissy and ensuring the behavior did not continue. We could certainly say that Ludlow deserved punishment or retribution beyond simply having his harassment stopped. But Clark restrained himself from making that judgment or doling out that punishment inside the roadhouse. Outside the roadhouse is another story. We addressed this extensively in episode 17, Trucker Tantrum, but Clark's action against Ludlow's truck are both questionable and partially justified. Basically, Ludlow was due more than having his actions stopped and called out, but arguably it isn't for Clark to pay him back, especially since it seems more colored by his own personal frustration and desire for retribution. And critics challenge the scope and the proportion of the response and how indirect it seems. In that earlier episode, I pushed 
back against those arguments, but I still ultimately agree that Clark acting out against the truck is a mistake in the light of the mission given by both his parents. He wasn't sent to Earth to act out his anger, and the risks taken to make him feel better would have worried Jonathan. It was out of line, but not unsympathetic. And it's worth meditating on that because it's rarely simply a black and white matter of right and wrong, just and unjust, absolute answers applicable always. No matter how much many will try to make you draw lines, take sides, or push narratives that try to insist otherwise, in the real world, justifications can be mixed, righteousness can be mixed, sympathies can be mixed, and so on. That's why the call to seek justice is wisely tempered by loving mercy and walking humbly. These films have been incredibly cognizant of human failing and redemption. Rather than casting what falls as fallen, the theme across these films has been that they will stumble but one day join you in the sun. And in that light, be accountable to yourself, to others, and your final destiny. Imagine one day that it's all going to be out in the light, in the sun, your stumblings and your failings, but also your eventual arrival in the light where everything is seen, known, and the journey celebrated. Try to conduct yourself with that perspective and judge others with the grace of what will come out then. It's easy to pick a point and say that that defines that person or thing for all time. But the hero's journey isn't about a single immutable moment moment affixed for eternity. It's called a journey because it is a journey of change and transformation. Superman has gone from champion of the oppressed to symbol of the status quo, from grounded to cosmic to silly to psychological. In cinema, he was a dose of 50s era nostalgia as we entered the cynical 80s. And today's cinematic Superman has arguably earned the moniker of Man of Tomorrow, incredibly ahead of his time in terms of contemporary and timely topics, even before before they hit the headlines. In that, there will be highs and lows, light and dark, success and struggle, and everything in between, and we would do well to try and stand back with that perspective. The hero's journey, like an engagement ring, is an expression of an endless loop rather than an eternal line because we come around and around and face similar challenges again and again. This never-ending cycle means to bring Superman full circle. The departure from what you thought you knew, helping to highlight, remind, and appreciate what you had taken for granted upon return. The filmmaker's fixation on this journey and cycle makes it all but certain that this was always the plan, always the intention, and always where we were going, and that only the short-sighted saw a short segment of the circle and projected the path as a tangent flying off into the void, never to return. To that end, remember that Justice League is not intended to satisfy your need for superhero stories for all time. It's just the end of one cycle and the start of a new one with infinite possibility. Like an engagement ring, it isn't the culmination of a relationship, but a milestone with the promise of much more. When you watch Justice League, check your expectations on it being the end-all, be-all superhero experience and try to enjoy it as the promise of more to come. If you commit, if you're all in, that opens the door to more and more stories. And each of those stories is just another opportunity to learn and apply their wisdom. The hero's journey is not just the story of our stories, it's your story and my story. Every one of us are in a status quo when we're faced with conflict, given an opportunity to change and come back better for it, showing what we've learned and how we've grown. You're the hero of your story. So let's do justice. Stand up, step in, speak out. 
Fight for those who can't. Champion the oppressed. Protect the vulnerable. Right wrongs, but love mercy. Reserve retribution and revenge even when and where it's deserved. Not because you condone evil, but because you care about your own character, about love, forgiveness, grace, and redemption. And walk humbly. Because maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day we'll be in the sun. The light exposing all and we'll give an account of our stories, how we stumbled and how we fell, and how we treated others, and how we cared for them. And we just have to decide what kind of characters we want to be. And we, we can be heroes. <laughs> I'll see you after Justice League. You're the answer, son. But this is, um, it's called Heroes. I will be king in you. You'll be my queen.
You're the answer, son.